good to be back with you this morning, and I appreciate the opportunity to share with you over the next several Sundays. Um, just my way, my preferred method of teaching is exposition. That's kind of starting at chapter one, verse one, and going verse by verse, kind of allowing the scripture itself to provide various topics. That's kind of how I always prefer to teach Sunday school. But over the next few weeks, we're gonna do nearly the opposite of that, okay? Instead of going verse by verse, we're going to take a bird's eye view, okay? First, considering the Bible itself, and then spending about four weeks on some particular themes of the whole of Scripture. I found this helpful in my approach to the Bible, and I pray that you will benefit as well. So that's kind of where we're going over the next few weeks. But to say that we live in a time of confusion would be a grand understatement. I think anybody under my hearing would agree with that statement. Political upheaval, the uprooting and the undermining of sound morals, the wasteland of the so-called sexual revolution, which actually began in the 1960s that we're reaping today. Culturally speaking, beloved, we are in the death throes, simply gasping as a culture. But I, what I would tell you today as Christians, we should not be surprised by this. And I'm not suggesting that we should be okay with it or lack concern or be negligent of our part to do what we can to stop that slide, but we should not be surprised by it. The world is following after the prince of the power of the air. And to compound this problem, over the past generation or two, the church has too often been adrift, following after particular church models of growth, seeking to be relevant, relevant messages, the signs say, outside of so many churches, Church, if the Bible is being faithfully preached, the message is relevant. Whether or not the world wants to hear it is a different story. But if the Bible is being preached, the message is relevant. Promising creative children's ministries and massive foyers with coffee shops and bookstores. Trying to appeal to the commercialism of the day. Now please hear me. You can have both a massive church and be faithful to the Bible. But too often, the aim of such churches has to been to make sinners comfortable, hoping that they would in turn like Jesus. Any attempt to gain popularity with the world by watering down the message of the cross is a treacherous path. Richard Niebuhr, who was no real friend to evangelicalism, saw this watering down of truth coming in the mid-20th century. He said this of such people who would water down the truth. He said their aim is to bring, is a God without wrath, bringing men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That sentiment is contrary to biblical teaching. So what has been the result? Well, too often it's a starvation of the truth and a neglect of God's word, which brings me to the topic of not only today's lesson, but the following weeks. Today I want to begin at the beginning, so to speak, at the foundation of our faith, and that is the Christian scriptures or the Bible. Some of you may say, whoa, whoa, Aaron. I love reading and I love hearing the Bible, but Jesus is the foundation of our faith, right? After all, we don't worship a book. We worship God and his son, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to which I would say a hearty amen. Truth. 
However, how is it that we came to know these truths? Was it not through the Bible? Whether it was by the guidance of the Holy Spirit in reading the Bible or hearing a person proclaim the biblical text through preaching or even in a friendly conversation. So this morning, I want to explore two questions. One, what is the Bible? And second, what does the Bible say about itself? We'll also look at a few ways in which the Bible functions or at least should function in our daily lives. We will be looking at several passages today, but our opening passage will be from Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 to 11. And if you would for me, if you would stand as we read that and remain standing for the opening prayer, we're going to be in Psalm 19, and we're going to uh, read verses 1 through 11. Psalm chapter 19, hear the word of God. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for the freedom that we share in this nation to gather together corporately as the body of Christ to focus our mind and our hearts on you. And Father, that is our desire, and I pray that it would be the desire of our hearts. As we sing to you, as we are able to study your word together, I pray that your Holy Spirit would enlighten and revive our hearts or our souls, as the psalmist said. Guide and direct us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would reign in this auditorium this morning. Father, that we would go out encouraged and enlightened, Father, by the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we look into the passage, we're just going to go over some quick points regarding the Bible and answer just by simple observation. Well, what is the Bible? Well, one, the Bible is a collection of writings that Christians consider uniquely inspired and authoritative. So the Bible is a collection of writings that Christians consider uniquely inspired and authoritative. Second Peter, and I'm getting ahead of myself already, but we're going to turn there right quick. Second Peter chapter 1. This is an important statement about what the Bible says about itself. So again, I'm a little ahead of myself, but that's okay. Chapter 1, verses 19 through 21 of 2 Peter. Peter says this, And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Wow, great words. 
until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Listen to this. Knowing that first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone else, excuse me, from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, the Bible is a collection of writings that Christians consider uniquely inspired and authoritative as a whole, okay? While a unified whole, okay, the Bible is made up of 66 smaller books written over various periods, each under the special direction of the Holy Spirit, roughly over a 1,500-year time frame. Going back to Moses, some people argue about who was the author of Job, which was one of the oldest books in the Old Testament. Was that Moses? Was it not? I'm not going to get into that here. But going back that far to Moses or, or even prior, all the way up through the Apostle John as he penned Revelation. And at that point, the canon was closed. But it is a unified whole, the Bible. We can't pick and choose what parts of it we want and what parts we're like, I don't feel very comfortable with that. That was tried through church history. A man named Marcion said, you know what? I like this God of the New Testament. I like Jesus. He's cool. But this thundering deity in the Old Testament, I don't know about him. So he says, I don't, I don't think we need that. That's really not what the Bible is. We can't do that. One of our popular and most famous founders, Thomas Jefferson, has the Jefferson Bible. He said, you know what? I like Jesus' morals, but this supernatural stuff, I don't know about that. We can't do that. <laughs> can't do that. What else? The Bible can be divided into two sections, okay? The Old Testament, which Jews also recognize as Scripture, and the New Testament. The word from which we get testament comes from the Latin term testamentum, if you're into $3 words. It simply means a covenant or a promise or an agreement, and I like that term agreement. Thus, in its basic division, the Bible records two covenant relationships between God and humanity, the new covenant being in reality a fulfillment of the many saving promises that God had made throughout history, that Satan would be crushed by a human descendant of Eve, that through Abraham's offspring, and we know that to be Jesus Christ, all the nations of the world would be blessed, okay? So the New Testament, a fulfillment of the Old Testament so often. The Old Testament contains 39 books of various genres. We need to be aware of that. When we're reading through the Old Testament, we kind of need to be aware. It's helpful in our study and our understanding of what is indeed that we are reading at that time. The Law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, also referred to as the Torah. Historical narratives, Joshua, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, those historical narratives of how God was moving all the way back then. The wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and such, Psalms, our songbook, if you will, as Christians. The prophets. The New Testament contains 27 books comprised of four gospels, a history of the early church, which is Acts. I always told my kids that you can kind of call Acts second Luke because Luke pens his gospel and then he goes on into the, into the history of the early church in Acts. 21 letters or epistles and then one book of apocalyptic literature written by John. But these were all recognized by the early church as inspired the Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew with a little bit of Aramaic sprinkled through in Daniel. The New Testament in Greek. Just some basic things to consider when you approach the Bible and the Scripture. But let's consider the passage for a bit. 
What does the Bible say about itself? It's important to know. First, we need to recognize that Psalm 19 is a Psalm of David. Most interesting character, David, isn't he? If we think about David and we think about the fact that he pins so many of the Psalms and we think about David's life, I was talking to Candace this morning and I think, how do you think the church would approach David if he came in to join the church or even more so if he was to apply for a ministry position? When you think about David, well, church, I got some confessions to make. Had an affair, not only that, I had the woman's husband sent to the front line so something might accidentally happen to him. And oh, by the way, if, my, if one of my sons comes in, be careful because he's been known to try to kill me. So be on the lookout for him. Might have the security detail on guard. Can you imagine the, 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 the hearing that as a church and, and we're, we're discussing that, but it's such an indication of how God looks at the heart because also David could say, you know what, I, haven't, I, I don't want to say this too loudly, but the scripture describes me as a man after God's own heart. Isn't that something when we consider the biblical authors? It should give us great hope and comfort. But what are the six, first six verses of this passage talking about? Take a look. What are they talking about? When you look at it, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech. He goes on and on. He talks about the sun and, the, and all of these kinds of things. What, what is David getting at here? Well, he's describing what we may rightly call natural or general revelation, isn't he? So the first six verses of Psalm 19, David is using natural or general revelation for the revelation of God to us, correct? Looking at the stars, the heavens, the expanse of the heavens, the sun, he's pointing to the creation as one of God's, as God's revelation to us. And to state it clearly, it would be like David saying, hey, have you considered the sky and the sun and the stars out there? Have you ever laid out in the yard with your binoculars and looked at the constellations? Have you watched a sunset or a sunrise at the Amaruji Lake or while driving home from work or while sitting in a tractor? Have you watched cattle grazing and calving in the springtime? Have you appreciated the complexity and the beauty of a common flower or a garden plant? Have you felt that unique chill that falls on the earth moments before a sunrise while sitting in a deer stand? All of that is proclaiming to you as if God is whispering, I'm here and I have created you for myself. Church, God's creation declares or proclaims continually and without ceasing the existence, power, and goodness of who he is. Natural revelation is to be enjoyed and appreciated as the gift that it is. And while it is enough to point to a creator, it only takes us part way to true knowledge of who God is. However, it does appear to be sufficient to render men highly accountable. And let's turn right quick to Romans 1. Turn quickly to Romans 1. Paul's epistle to the Romans, first chapter. Paul's making a, in the middle of a grand point here. It's hard to even read these verses without leaping into an explanation of them. But listen to what Paul is saying when he's writing to the Romans. Romans chapter one, starting at verse 18. Listen to this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do what? You see it? They suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them. Listen to this. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Listen to this. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And listen to this, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Does this sound familiar at all in 2021 modern day? They suppress the truth. The truth is there but it is suppressed in unrighteousness because we don't want to hear that. Man, the relevant, how relevant Scripture is to our moment that we live in right now. Instead of recognizing God as creator, idolatrous humanity seeks to worship the things created. And God holds them accountable for not responding even to natural revelation. And I think about that and I'm like, God holds accountable those who will not respond to natural revelation. What more to those who have sat under the teaching of scripture for decades and it still has not penetrated the heart. So, second half of the passage, going back to Psalm 19. Sorry. Got a little carried away there in Romans. So, Psalm 19. Back to the second part of uh, Psalm 19, starting at verses seven and through the remainder of our passage through 11. In verse seven, David shifts to what we may call special revelation or divine revelation. So there's a shift in the passage. Natural revelation to divine revelation. And David is describing God's word in that second portion of, of Psalm 19 that we've read. He's describing God's word. Special or divine revelation is a supernatural gift and grace from God whereby he reveals himself to us in a way that otherwise we could never know him. Special or divine revelation is a supernatural gift and grace from God whereby he reveals himself to us in a way that otherwise we could never know him. Church, this is a grand blessing. For without the written word, we could never know the way to salvation in Jesus Christ or know God in such an intimate way. Creation speaks of a creator, perhaps beautiful but seemingly distant. God's word reveals to us a lover and a rescuer, one who is jealous for a relationship with us because we are his image bearers. The Bible helps us to know who God truly is and it also very accurately portrays who we are as his creation. I don't know about many of you. People look at me sometimes when I talk about the Bible and they're like, are you kidding me? It's 2021. You believe that? Yes, I do for many reasons. But one reason for sure is because the Bible so accurately tells me about myself. And how broken humanity is. So many reasons could be used for our belief in scripture. The Holy Spirit's ministering to our souls. The textual reasons why we, why we believe the word of God to be true. But have you read the Bible? 
Does it not accurately tell you about who you are? Does it not accurately tell you about the times in which we live? In whatever times that may be. We're a broken bunch, church. Bible tells us so. In verses 7 to 11, David uses descriptors to tell us what God's word is in the first line. Look at what he does here. Verse 7. Let's just look at verse 7 right quick. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So it tells us what God's word is in the first line and what God's word effectually accomplishes in the second phrase. Look at the words he uses. Perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, enduring, righteousness. Excuse me, righteous. And look at what it accomplishes for those who read and live by it. It revives the soul. Anyone feel like they need their soul revived at times? 2020 should have put an exclamation point on that, I believe. How much we need this in the church. No wonder, beginning in verse 10, he states that it is more to be desired than much fine gold. Chase after money. But if you forget this, what is the point? How we respond and what we believe about the Bible is very consequential and highly relevant to our age. An age where scripture, and hear me, and if you don't see this coming, I pray that you will open your eyes. An age where scripture will be soon, soon be deemed hate speech by our own government. If you don't see that coming, I pray that you open your eyes. I think lay so much for his sensitivity this morning and coming up here and saying what he said. Church, Read 1 Peter sometime. It's a short book in the Bible. But my goodness, it's relevant to today. If you don't see what's coming at us, open your eyes. What's more, what is the first thing Satan gets Eve to question or stumble over? Let's turn back to Genesis right quick. Genesis chapter 3. So much goodness in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and everything's going along just wonderfully. And we hit Genesis 3. It's like hitting one of those road bumps that you don't see coming. Genesis 3, 1. I want you to listen to, what the, to the language here. Genesis chapter 3. Now listen, this is our introduction to the serpent. We all know who the serpent is. It is Satan. Listen to, listen to this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, first words... Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden and so on and so forth? First words, did God, actu- did God actually say that? First words out of his mouth, did God actually say? And that question resounds like a gong today. It is Satan's most lethal question. If he can get us to doubt the integrity and the authority of Scripture. Look at the consequence. We know the devastating result of that in the garden. And here we are all these years later having to spray thistles in our pastures. It's more so than that. Don't get me wrong. With us, one. I think about that in the springtime. Compare that to the second Adam. Adam. To Jesus in the desert being tempted by Satan in Matthew chapter 4. 
I'm gonna give you the verse. We're not gonna turn there. You certainly can if you'd like. But, but compare and contrast Adam and Eve in the garden and how they dealt with the serpent to Jesus, the second Adam, in Matthew chapter four, verses one to 11. We're not gonna read the passage, but you will notice when you, as you read that how Jesus answers every single one of the devil's temptations. Verse four, verse seven, verse 10. What does Jesus say over and over to Satan when Satan tempts him? Say it louder. Thank you. It is written, Satan. What is Jesus referring to? Remember who Jesus is. Jesus is God incarnate. When Satan comes at him with temptation, how does Jesus answer? It's, no, it's written here that this is what you shall do. Not what you're telling me. It's written that it's, this is the way we are to respond. That's how God incarnate responds to the serpent. When Satan seeks to deconstruct and destroy, he will inevitably begin by attacking the authority of the Bible. It is that way then, it is that way today. And this is why it is so vital for us to know what the Bible is and what it says about itself. It is God's word to us and it is unchanging, just as God himself is unchanging. And now in closing, we're gonna consider some basic functions of the Bible. And to be honest, this list could be a mile long. I mean, you have to stop somewhere, but we're gonna consider a few things of how the Bible should function in our lives as Christian people. First, it is an objective standard, okay? It is an objective standard. That means it is not subjective, okay? It is objective, it is firm. It is the arbiter of truth in both doctrine and deed in teaching and action, period, the end. It is an objective standard. This is so crucial in the time of confusion in which we live. In Jesus' prayer in John 17, again, we're not gonna turn there, but John chapter 17 and verse 17, Jesus asked the Father, talking about his people then, and, and we are the recipients of this prayer as well in today, today. Jesus says this when he's praying to God, Again, this is, this is right before Jesus' earthly ministry comes to a close. He says, Father, he says, sanctify them. That means set them apart. Set them apart or sanctify them in the truth. Next sentence, your word is truth. Objective standard. God's word is not subject to the whim of man and it does not bow to cultural shifts. Isaiah in chapter 48 tells us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So important. Second, it convicts us of sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit applies God's word to the human heart, convicting people of having failed to meet God's holy standard and convincing them of their just condemnation and not only their need of a savior, but the blessed truth that God in his great mercy has sent his own son to be that savior. I heard one, per, uh, one Bible teacher said, I can't remember, it's been too long ago, but he said, it is, a, it is a grand thing to have the page in your hand and the author in your heart. We are ready for anything it is a grand thing to have the page in our hand and the author in our heart. The Bible convicts us of sin through the power of the Holy Spirit applying God's word to our heart. Next, 
for correction and instruction. God uses scripture to both correct and edify his people. 2 Timothy, I will turn there right quick. It's an important passage for us. 2 Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. Listen to this. This even tells us again about what the Bible has to say about itself in 2 Timothy. And this is Paul writing to Timothy. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Do you ever need corrected? Come work cows with me someday. Or better yet, help me gather cattle into substandard corral systems with fencing that is more of a wish than a reality. <laughs> there will be much training and instruction that you could provide. And you can ask my sons, my wife, or even my dad who's with us today. I'd probably better ask my sons or my dad because my wife has resigned from that position long ago. <sighs> Much correction, and we need correction. The Holy Spirit applies conviction to our hearts through God's word at salvation, bringing us to Christ, and he uses his word throughout our sanctification to be constantly correcting and bringing us into alignment that we can ever be conformed to the image of Christ. Just remember that. It's, a, it's okay that we are corrected from scripture. We need it. Well, I need it. Next, it helps us persevere, okay? It helps us persevere. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, we hold fast to the saving message of the scriptures through the trials, pains, and temptations of life. That's individually, that's within a family, that's a corp corporately as the church. The trials, the pains, and the temptations of life. Through this perseverance, we gain increasing confidence in God's promise to keep us until the end. Very important. Again, I, I know we're turning back and forth. I love to hear pages turning. John 10, and we'll, we will turn to it. It's such a comforting passage. If you're not familiar with, with the 10th chapter of John, I encourage you to underline or star it. Or memorize it. I have it, I have it memorized myself. John 10, starting at verse 27. John 10, verse 27, this is Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. I could just stop right there, just soak in that. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Mic drop. What more needs to be said? If that does not comfort you, I urge you to spend some time in that passage and in John 10 altogether. Psalm 23 is another one that comes to mind. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He is there. He is a real help 
in time of need. There are some of you under my hearing right now who have experienced pain on a level that I simply cannot fathom. The scripture proclaims the assurance of our hope in desperation and unspeakable pain. The assurance of our hope. And beloved, don't be confused by the word hope, how we use it in our modern context. That's not the way scripture meant it. Hope, I could say I hope it's sunny tomorrow. It doesn't really have any substance. That's not what hope means in the scripture. Hope is an accomplished, an accomplished fact that we look forward to with with knowing that it's going to come to pass. That's what the word hope in Scripture means. It's not some floating desire that we have. It is sure and true, and we look forward to it. Lastly, and again, this list could go on for pages. Joy and delight. To those who know God, the Bible can be a source of tremendous joy and delight, and I am very guilty of missing this on an almost continuous basis. Do you know that God wants us to be joyful people? Again, I go back to Lathe being sensitive this morning. When he, when he came up here, it made me think of this. I am so distracted by what's going on around me that it's so difficult to just bask in the truth that God wants us to be joyful because we have an eternal hope. John 15, 10 and 11, you don't have to turn there. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, Jesus saying, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, listen to this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. How often do we think on that? I'm so distracted. Phones, TV, work, this, that, the other. How long are we able to get in a quiet spot and just consider what God's word tells us is the truth? Many of you, if you follow John Piper at all, have heard this statement. But God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Great sentence. And by joy, I don't mean giddiness. Don't, don't, don't be mistaken. I'm not talking about giddiness. I'm talking about joy. The coexistence of sorrow and joy is a delicate balance. Joy is a state of abiding in God's truth and the hope that it gives us. So in closing, I encourage you to put yourself under the word of God. It is true. It is unchanging. It is transforming. And church, it will all be accomplished. It is a special gift to us from God that not only may we know him intimately and accurately, but that we may be well-equipped and informed in a fallen world. And also that in him and through his word, we may find completion and joy even in our brokenness. As I was thinking about this message this week, I thought to myself, who does more injury to the authority of Scripture? The academics that set in ivory towers that criticize the Bible and critique it textually, 
or those who hold it up and proclaim to believe it, yet ignore it and walk in a way contrary to what it says. Church, do you have any idea what obedience to simply love thy neighbor would do to change the world? Love thy neighbor. So much to consider. So much to be thankful for. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for you having blessed us with the creation. Father, what a blessing it is when we can get quiet and, and, and watch a sunrise or, or whatever it may be, to hear the laughter of a child. All of these things, Father, that you give us that you set, Father, within our hearts. We are grateful for it. But Father, we are also grateful that you loved us to an extent, that you provided us with an even more true revelation of who you are through your word and then completely in Jesus Christ. Father, help us not neglect so great a salvation. Help us to find times to consider who we are and what scripture says that we are as your people. Guide and direct us, Father. Help us to know that it is your will for us to be giving thanks, to be always in prayer, to be a joyful people. Father, help us to look to your word as we hold the page in our hand and know that the author is in our heart, that we could go out in confidence and boldness, even in a world that seems to be burning to the ground, Father, that we go out there with confidence, knowing that we have an eternal hope that is sure. I pray for your guidance for this church. I pray for your guidance for the individuals in this church, the individual families and the individuals themselves. Guide and direct us that your Holy Spirit would be a sure guide and that we would hear that still small voice knowing that you are in control of all things. And Father, for all of that, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. And I will end with a benediction, but I would say if there is anyone with more questions about the message or questions about the Bible or questions about salvation or if the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart, please come find me or one of the elders. We are happy to talk to you about such things. And church, if you will stand, we'll read a benediction and then we will be dismissed. But the benediction is from Ephesians 3. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. And Paul says this in Ephesians. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go in the humble confidence in God and his word. We're dismissed.